Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Welcome back, folks. We are very fortunate to have our next guest. He has been hosting a lot of people from all around the world for a multitude of days in the celebration of a opening of the Liberation Pavilion and the final touches on the Colonel Battle Barksdale Parade Grounds out at the World War II Museum. They, they had so many different events going on. It was absolutely phenomenal. Stephen Watson, president and CEO of the National World War II Museum. I know he has to be exhausted, but Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Newell. It was uh, just an amazing week, an amazing week, beyond our, our wildest expectations. So uh, tell us about the build-up to this. I mean, you know, you guys had kind of a self-imposed deadline, right? You wanted all of this to happen before Veterans Day. You did it. Um, but uh, I guess as, as building anything, you're going through trials and tribulations and uh, ups and downs and, and working hard to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing like a deadline to get you focused. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I think really um, what this was all about for us was a couple of things. One, um, we wanted to host the Congressional Medal of Honor Society uh, when we opened our final pavilion liberation and, and celebrated the completion of this campus. Um and we had 42 Medal of Honor recipients here last week. Um, there will probably never be 42 Medal of Honor recipients um, together in the same place ever again in the future. So um, we hosted their annual meeting, their convention. Uh, they were out in the community. Um, we actually talked to them at one point about doing it on Veterans Day week, but they said, you know what, we, we all have so many obligations in our own communities that week, so let's do it the week before. So. Um, that was really one of the sort of pillars of last week was was having uh, these men and their families here in our community, in the schools, working with veterans groups. Um, they really they touched you know over a hundred different schools, ten thousand students, wow. um, not only last week but with uh, their character development curriculum that has been uh, taught throughout the region for the last year. So we wanted them here at the finish line. Um, it was a struggle to, to get finished uh, f uh, the Liberation Pavilion, but uh, I think someone you know well, my our, our VP Bob Farnsworth and his team just did a fantastic job with our partners in, in pulling it all together. Um, and it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It really completes the campus by helping the visitor understand the closing months of the war, the cost of our victory, um, and how World War II really changed our country and, and changed America's role uh, in the world after the fighting was over, really through the lens of preserving freedom and protecting democracy uh, and human rights. So it all came together last week. It was 20 events over six days um, and, and just an amazing way to cap off this 20-year this journey to build a museum. Tom Hanks visited again. Uh, that has to be huge. I've heard, I've had at least a dozen people that I know. I had conflicts, so I wasn't able to make it. But 
I've talked to at least a dozen people that heard his speech and said it was just phenomenal. It was unbelievable. He was, yeah, he was remarkable. You know, he has been with us uh, since the very beginning. He was here, you know, on June 6, 2000, 23 plus years ago when the the ribbon was cut to open the D-Day Museum. And he's been with us, you know, every uh, step of the way. And uh, he was here for two and a half days and spoke three times and uh, was just inspiring, um, inspirational in a way that's hard to put into words. Uh, he had a chance to go through the Liberation Pavilion um, and literally that night, you know, spoke about the meaning and the importance of understanding um, the cost of our victory and, and how it shaped uh, America and the world. Um, and he was actually honored by the Congressional Medal of Honor Society um, last Friday night, along with uh, another great New Orleanian, uh, Wendell Pierce, um, mm-hmm. who was there with his father, Amos Pierce, uh, 99 years old, served uh, in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, Robin Roberts, uh, who's been a great friend to our museum, too, whose father was a Tuskegee Airman. Um, and one of my current board members, former chairman, uh, Paul Hilliard, who um, was a tail gunner and an SBD Dauntless dive bomber, flew over 40 missions in the Pacific. So that was kind of the wow. big culminating event last Friday where they were honored by the Medal of Honor Society for, for their contributions and support of the military uh, and their careers. So if you would, Stephen, tell us a little bit about the, the thought process and the development of the Liberation Pavilion. So we really think of our mission in sort of three phases, you know, helping our visitors understand why did we fight the war in the first place, how did we win it, and and what does that mean today. Uh, And liberation is, you know, really the the permanent pavilion that gets to that last part of our mission, the what it means today. And, and, And part of understanding the meaning is you have to understand what was at stake, you have to understand the cost, um, and that's really what the first part of liberation does, is you come in, is, is understand that, you know, um, our victory came at a tremendous cost, 414,000 American lives, um, 16.4 million men and women that put on a uniform uh, in the American military, 65 million uh, people were killed, uh, mainly civilians, Um, a level of destruction um, across the world that's just hard to fathom. So I think there's some really difficult content in in liberation, but we think it's important not only to celebrate our victory, but really understand the cost. And uh, a part of that story is, uh, of course, the Holocaust. And uh, we have several galleries in there that really, you know, highlight – you know, the atrocities that took place. And, and, and one of, I think, the most powerful exhibits in the whole pavilion is we have a theater on the first floor. And uh, all it is is testimony from survivors and liberators talking about what it felt like uh, either at the moment of liberation, if you were a survivor, or if you were a GI that came upon a camp, uh, what it was like to see that. And uh, it's just incredibly moving and difficult content, but it really gets to the essence of what this pavilion is about, which is, you know, the struggle, um, the the scale of the death and the destruction and how powerful um, that moment of liberation is and why it matters. So that's the first part of the story. And then as you get into uh, the exhibits, you'll, you'll learn about the role of faith in wartime, the work of the monuments men and women. And then 
in the second level, you know, uh, how did uh, World War II impact our country? Uh, how did it impact the civil rights movement, uh, the rise of the middle class, women's equality, advances in technology and medicine? And, and how did it change America's role in the world? Really, all through the lens of trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. So, you know, our defensive alliances like NATO, the Marshall Plan, how we went back and not only helped our allies, but our former enemies, you know, rebuild their countries and establish liberal democracies. Um, and then the last part of the building is really sort of a, a challenge to our visitors to, to think about how, you know, freedom and democracy will always be under pressure and, and why that will that will always be relevant to us as Americans. So it's a really powerful uh, exhibit uh, that we think just completes the whole narrative of World War II on our campus. I have to imagine there were numerous conversations that you had with any number of visiting dignitaries and others about where we find ourselves right now and the strife that we have in the Middle East and some of our own um, being fired upon at the present time and actually the opening of the Liberation Pavilion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we've said this numerous times in the last several years, you know, we're a history museum. And, and I think uh, to understand where we are today, you have to understand what happened in the past, um, whether that's in, you know, Eastern Europe as it relates to Ukraine or uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now. And, and, and you know, I think our job as uh, the storytellers for World War II is to help provide some historical context to how we got here today. And of course, we we certainly uh, didn't know what was going to be happening in the world uh, at this time. But it's you know an important time to be opening up um, an exhibit on the Holocaust at the National World War II Museum. So we think um, you know this pavilion has great relevance, great meaning um, in a number of different ways. And I think part of that is that you know the the struggle for freedom and democracy will will never end um and it was what we were fighting for in in the war and and what we did after the war to try and protect and promote that um clearly has continuing relevance today how rewarding was it for you uh i saw a piece on cbs tv uh this morning yeah. where I, th I think it was a holocaust survivor uh, who y'all had interviewed and is presented in, in, in a film uh, that you talked about, I think that's on the first floor, that heard her interview for the first time. And um, you, it, 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 it's so moving. I mean, it almost just brings tears to your eyes. It, it does. And, look, I've been here 21 and a half years, and uh, I, I say, and I mean this honestly, it's a privilege every day to walk through our doors and, and be part of the mission at this museum. And it was incredibly gratifying last week. It was incredibly gratifying, I think, um, for all of us here, but, you know, especially for Nick Mueller, uh, you know, my predecessor and uh, co-founder with Stephen Ambrose. Uh, it was gratifying to see those moments, like Eva Nathanson, who you're referring to, uh, watch her oral history in the pavilion for the first time, um, or uh, Pam Rubin whose husband, Mark, uh, a Holocaust survivor, passed away uh, two years ago. They, they underwrote the Liberation Theater on the first floor. And to be with Pam as she came into the theater and saw Mark's uh, testimony uh, you know, in the theater, there were so many moments. And, and honestly, I, I thought a lot about um, all of the World War II veterans uh, 
uh, Holocaust survivors and home front workers who were volunteers at our museum over the last 20 plus years. You know, the vast majority of them are gone now. So I thought of guys like Tom Blakey and Bert Stoyer and Tommy Godshaw and we often talked about this day when the campus uh, would be complete, and uh, I thought about them, and, and uh, it made, I think, all of us really feel proud that, you know, through um, a lot of ups and downs over the last uh, 23 years, um, we stayed the course, and we've been able to, you know, complete this campus with the opening of Liberation. What's next? Uh, I, you know, the the few times that I've interacted with you, you um, that was the beneficiary. Of, uh, you showed me the vision of all of this um, many years ago, not long after I first came on radio. Yeah. And I know you're a big fan of radio, and we talked about that and some other issues. Um, and there were many things in the, in the vision that you had here. And to come to the culmination of a $400-plus million investment over all these years, and um, do you, have you – stop to take a breath or are you thinking about that already we we are I and mean, look we've never been busier and uh it's sort of a bit of a misnomer to say that we've finished the capital campaign because uh, we have so many projects um underway or about to be underway on our campus um a major refresh to beyond all boundaries our, our 4d experience that's now 14 years old a complete redo of the original D-Day exhibits. Um, we're opening a leadership training center, a new museum support center for the care of our artifacts and, and uh, exhibits, uh, a new entrance. We're about to reopen the Kushner uh, Restoration Pavilion and, and uh, uh, again make PT-305 accessible to the public as well as having for the first time an area where our visitors can watch our curators doing active uh, restoration work. So we have an incredible amount of work uh, here on our campus in the next two to three years, and, and that will never uh, end. Um, and at the same time, we're becoming much more deliberate and focused on scaling education uh, and outreach. You know, I, I believe that with uh, our mission um, as a museum in the, the 21st century, we have a responsibility to to do more than just bring people here to our campus. Um, we have to do more in terms of curriculum development, teacher training, distance education, uh, film and video production. Um, we really want to be the most accessible and trusted resource for the American experience on World War II. And, and we're going to get after that with the same sense of urgency and excellence as we have uh, building this campus. So we'll we'll have more to say about all of that in the the months ahead, but um, we certainly have uh, marked uh, the ending of an important chapter in the development of our museum, but we are far from, from finished with our work. And, and of course, tomorrow on Veterans Day, we have another really important uh, opening, and that is, um, I would say, our most significant special exhibition to date, Our War II, which chronicles the role of the 350,000 women that wore a uniform uh, during uh, the war. And uh, this will open uh, tomorrow morning uh, on Veterans Day and will really shed a light on uh, the amazing role that women had in our military uh, during World War II in a way that we don't think uh, has been done before. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Um, a lot of times that gets overlooked. I happened to watch a documentary. I don't remember if it was World War II in color. It was one of those. It was on Netflix. 
Uh, and it, it really struck me that as, as many books that I've read about World War II, uh, hardly any that really just focus on the role that both women played back here on our homeland as well as overseas as well. That's right. Um, so we're going to try and do our part to change that. And, and Kim Geis, who's our director of curatorial, curatorial affairs here at the museum, has been working on this for several years and has just done uh, an amazing job. And, and the the service that women gave in the armed forces, I think a lot of people really have no idea, you know, whether it was the women air service pilots that were, you know, flying aircraft, um, the women Marines who were mechanics, um, the 6th uh, Postal Directory Battalion, uh, mostly uh, African-American female battalion deployed in Europe, uh, helping deliver over 30 million pieces of mail. Um, so there's a lot of important uh, stories there. And uh, one aspect of this exhibit um, that we'll launch tomorrow is this will be the first time we are using um, our new interactive oral history uh, program where uh, you'll be able to come into this exhibit and ask questions to three women that served. Romay Davis, who was in the 6888, uh, Virginia Wilterdink, who was a nurse in the 314th uh, General Hospital Unit, served in the Pacific, uh, and Florence Smith, who was in the Coast Guard Reserve. And uh, we interviewed these three ladies uh, last year um, over three days, asked them about 1,500 questions. Um, wow. There's an artificial intelligence program that gets applied to this, and the end result is you walk into the exhibit, you see them sitting on a chair, you walk up and you ask them a question, and they answer you. Um, so this will be the first time we have deployed this uh, in an exhibit, and I think it's going to just blow people away. And uh, and we'll also have Romay, who's 104, and Virginia here with us for the opening uh, tomorrow morning. That's absolutely incredible that you're able to draw a lot of the folks that serve that are up in age. Um, and as we know, the numbers of those serving in World War II are diminishing. But I'm always amazed by y'all's ability to bring so many people back to this museum. Uh, we are, too. And uh, that was another aspect of last week that was just so emotional for all of us. You know, we had 40 members of the World War II generation here from every corner of the country, uh, most of them in their late 90s or, or older. Um, and what made it emotional is it was clear that for many of them, they knew this was probably their last trip. It wasn't easy. You know, they had uh, family members accompanying them. Um, and as you said earlier, it was, you know, one aspect that made this opening so gratifying. But, yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. And uh, and we continue to have a great partnership with Gary Sinise and his foundation, um, Soaring Valor, where we are bringing groups of veterans from communities all across the country. We did five or six of them this year, and we'll start that back up again uh, next spring. So as long as we have members of that generation that are willing to come to New Orleans, we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. If you would, um, for the benefit of the listening audience, you you guys have an incredible set of volunteers. I've had the opportunity to meet many um, and just engage them in conversation. And I've had some say to me they've never been happier in their life than sharing this experience and what they're doing in the museum. 
Our volunteers are amazing. Um, we have uh, 350 active volunteers that give their time and talent uh, every week, uh, involved in so many different aspects uh, of the museum, mainly interacting uh, with our guests. Many of them have relatives that served in the war. Many of them are veterans uh, themselves, but they make a visit to the museum so extra special because of the care and attention that they give to the visitors, especially those that have put on a uniform uh, and served our country. And uh, we had uh, three of our volunteers with us at the celebration last week that were here on June 6, 2000, that very first day, and have continued to volunteer over those uh, these last 23 years. And, and collectively, they've given about 1.2 million hours of their time. Wow to support our museum. So our museum, simply put, would not be the museum that it is had it not been for uh, the service uh, of our volunteers. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I consider them sort of my ad advisory board. They're always uh, willing to give me good feedback as well and tell me what we're doing right and where we can improve. So they're just, they're just a, a source of inspiration for me and, and what makes this museum special. Stephen, congratulations to you, your staff, um, the incredible board of directors that you guys have assembled and all of the volunteers. Uh, the, the city of New Orleans is incredibly proud of the accomplishments uh, over these 20-plus years and uh, look forward uh, to the future and all, all the other things that you're thinking about, some of which you had shared with me before, and I was just com continue to be blown away. Uh, by the ingenuity, the technology, and everything that y'all are bringing forward. And, and you truly are, and your organization is a shining beacon here in the city of New Orleans, and we thank you for your effort. Well, thank you, Newell, and uh, we've got to get you over here to see Liberation soon. Oh, I'll be there soon. I promise you. Thank you, sir. All right. Have a great uh, thank you. Veterans Day tomorrow. Good luck with the celebration tomorrow out there, and thank you for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Alrighty, Stephen Watson, President and CEO of the National World War II Museum. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us, and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Watson from the National World War II Museum. He's the president and CEO there. I, I'm going to tell you this, folks. I, I've met with Stephen several times. I've interviewed him a number of times. And you heard him calling out names of individuals that are, have done certain things. And I can promise you he does not have a list in front of you, in front of him. He remembers that. Uh, and it, it always amazes me. Uh, he is very in tune with everything that's going on there and all of the folks that they recognize uh, at the museum. And if the Liberation Pavilion is anything is like all the other pavilions that are offered there, it's got to be absolutely incredible. And um, if you want to get out there tomorrow for that celebration, uh, I can promise you, you will not be let down. 
want to remind everyone about the 7th Annual Veterans Day Parade uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. It'll be right there on Harrison Avenue. We just uh, visited with John D. Fitzmorris. He's a um, teaches at UNO Department of History and Philosophy, and he's actually teaching one of the classes that Stephen Ambrose uh, taught. Uh, he revealed that uh, on the Vietnam War. It's a class that I took back in the 70s at, at UNO, and it's still alive and well today. We've had the opportunity to read out a, a couple of names uh, thus far that uh, Tommy started, and I said that I would uh, continue uh, to do that um, Staff Sergeant Martin Mayer, Petty Officer Second Class Luther Lewis, Sergeant Gerard Lewis, Veterans Albert Oquin Jr., Navy, Richard Slaudecker, Marines, Al Flair, who served in the Army in 1942, 43, 44, and 45 in Leyte and Guam and the Philippine Islands, um, Henry Monroe, James, Staff Sergeant, U.S. Army, 1941 to 45, survived the Battle of the Bulge. And they said that they bought a brick for him at the World War II um, Museum. It's something uh, that, that you can do, and a lot of people take pride in doing that. It's pretty incredible when you see uh, all of that there um, as well. We continue to have uh, stories coming out of the Middle East uh, be between uh, Israel and Hamas and whether or not we're, we're going to have this uh, pause. It seems like we are uh, for humanitarian purposes, and uh, obviously the Israelis want to continue uh, on their trek to eliminate Hamas. They are finding all kinds of weapons and arms located under churches, school, I mean, uh, uh, hospitals and schools and, and, and other locations uh, throughout uh, Gaza City. Uh, they're really uh, choking down on the leadership of Hamas there. You've heard me say this before. We need to finish the job. What's going on in this country right now is absolutely incredulous. It's embarrassing, quite frankly. Hate crimes against the Jewish community have uh, jumped by over 200% compared to the same period last year. Since October 7th, a 214% spike in anti-Jewish incidents. What are we doing? Did anyone ever realize that we had, we've been harboring this hate and the level of this hate? And I guess we've been harboring this for a long time now. And it's just interesting where, where we are and, and how we're expressing ourselves whether you're pro-palestine it, it doesn't really matter but to get to the point of you're going to be violent about it as if and though that makes a bigger statement about your belief or otherwise is silly and then we have leadership or lack thereof i should say uh, which is also embarrassing of some of the finest educational institutions in the country are saying nothing. And then when they do say something, it's a word salad. It's almost as if the English language is not even taught there. Talking around the issue instead of talking straight to the issue, which seems relatively easy to me, and you will be on the moral high road of 
terrorism and terror-related groups and the horrific acts that they embarked upon and engaged in are just not acceptable. How, how hard is it to say that? Who could you possibly be offending? I try to put myself in other people's shoes. And when I do so, it's kind of, who would I offend by saying that? What is it that someone could do to justify the horrific acts that these terror, terrorists engaged in? I welcome the fact that they are now sharing video, GoPro video, body cam video that was strapped to the bodies of these terrorists while they embarked upon defenseless, defenseless civilians near the Gaza Strip when they went into the kibbutzes and it's being shared. Of course, the pro-Palestinian folks are pushing back. They're trying to shut it down. They're trying to, to create deflection and denial and evasion. And, of course, they go on the counterattack because they don't want anybody to see this. They want to be able to continue to deny that it happened. Because the, the sad reality here is that is that they're not able to come to grips with that either. So they don't want anybody seeing any of the horror that they heaped on innocent civilians in Israel. I hope that we are more successful in showing more of these videos, more of these pictures, because I believe that it serves a significant educational experience and addresses the reality of what we of what the the Israelis had to deal with in as a result of this invasion from Gaza into Israel plain and simple point out the obvious state the obvious let it be out there for everyone to see which is a little bit unlike the, the manner in which we handled the scenes of the camps in Germany and in other countries in the, when we went in towards the end of World War II. There were a lot of that, a lot of those scenes that were not shared. The horror was not shared. And we missed, I think, a defining moment there, the same way we missed the defining moment in the aftermath of, of dropping bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that a lot of what went on there was not revealed for dozens of years, until dozens of years later. We can gain a better understanding of the horror, the terror, and put it in the context that it should be put in right now. Because that context is what motivates what the Israelis are doing each and every day. Without that context, people are missing it. People are talking around it. 
people are acting like they're blinded. People are, are engaged in make-believe. And unless we put it front and center for all to see, we will continue to have the issues that we're having right now with deflection, denial, and evasion. We'll be right back. Folks, just a reminder, we've got a lot coming up uh, this weekend. And um, our Saints coverage, uh, as you know, we play, we're out in Minnesota. We're going to be in Minneapolis. Uh, and that, that coverage is going to start um, um, I had it right here, uh, and now I've lost it. <laughs> but it'll <laughs> – here we go. All right, I got it. Uh, the, the, the question is, can we do it three times in a row? That's the big question. And the, the Sunday, uh, the Saints take on the Vikings in Minnesota, your game day starts at 8 a.m. And it's uh, first take with Steve Geller and Charlie Long. You can check in from your tailgate party. And at 10 o'clock, the Bud Light countdown to kick off with Bobby Bear and Steve Geller. Featuring Mike Dettelier, kickoff with Deuce and Haas is high noon. You can turn down your TV and listen to the home team. Saints legend Deuce McAllister, voice of the Saints, Mike Haas, and sideline reporter Jeff Nowak. And then after the game, blast off with the Ciroc point after show with Cajun Cannon on Community Coffee Saints Radio Network. I know we keep saying this. It's a big game. Uh, it's a really big game. And then we go into a bye week, and then we head off to play Atlanta. And we'll, we still have to play Atlanta twice, and I think we still play, um, yeah, the, we play Atlanta twice, and then we still play the Bucks, and we play the Carolina Panthers as well. But we come off the bye, and we head out to Atlanta, which is going to be the Thanksgiving uh, weekend. So tune in Sunday morning, kickoff at noon, Saints and the Vikings out in Minneapolis. Now, when we come back after the uh, top of the news break, we're going to visit with Jim Donlin, Louisiana Insurance Commissioner. We'll be talking about the third round of grants relative to fortified roofs in the fortified home program. And there are uh, several hundred of grants, grants available in this third round now. I've talked to a couple of folks that have been able to take advantage of it, and um, they are very pleased about that and um, seems to be that uh, this is uh, something that's very important to try and bring down insurance rates. This is actually a crisis that we find ourselves in, and we'll talk a little bit about that and some of the uh, practices that are going on with the uh, insurance companies too. And uh, we'll get the uh, the current insurance commissioner's thoughts uh, relative uh, to those issues as well. So we'll be right back after this break. Stay with us, 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. This is Newell on WWL. Well, you know, there are about 4,500 people living on the streets in Portland, Oregon. The city passed some new ordinances and was getting ready to enforce them to, to uh, remove campers off of public property keep them off of sidewalks, out of green spaces, away from schools where they're proliferated with garbage and drug paraphernalia. Well, there's a judge that says, mm, not so fast. There was a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of the homeless people living in the street challenging the ordinance. And they said that the ordinance, is, it's impossible to understand or comply with because there are no maps indicating exactly 
where homeless people are allowed to camp out. Seems to me there's a simple solution to this. That would be nowhere. Nowhere on, pro on public property are you allowed to set up a tent, build a house, build cardboard houses, or otherwise. End of the story. We'll be right back with Insurance Commissioner Jim Donlin. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 